little things that have changed. This camera here is different, I think, than the last time we were here. And uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, it's not. I mean, work the wireless microphone, you know. Just, yeah. If you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter two. I'm going to be reading uh, verse 1 all the way through verse 17, Mark chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And he's, as he was preaching the word to them. And they came... And, uh, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down. Uh, the bed on, uh, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And he went again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. About a month or so ago, someone asked me, you know, when you kind of get a reputation of, of being a reader and reading a lot, uh, you sometimes get the question, what have you been reading lately? And so that question kind of caused me to think about, you know, over the last six months. And, and because I didn't have a plan, I hadn't been following, doing any particular research or anything, uh, any general subject in particular. So I started thinking, what have I been reading the last six months? And I started going through the books. And I realized uh, that, there re that there was sort of a driving question in my mind. Do you, you remember the scripture in the Old Testament that describes the, the sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 
And I realize that a lot of the things that I'm reading are because I do not understand the times that I'm living in, and I don't know what we should do. And so I, you know, started thinking about what is it that, that I'm really looking for? What am, I, what am I finding out as I'm reading all of these different books? I've been reading uh, some, some new stuff uh, that's, you know, kind of the latest research. Uh, there's a historian named Carl Truman uh, who wrote a book called the, uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is all about kind of explaining how we got to this point in history with issues like transgenderism and, and some of the things that are going on right now. <coughs> There's a really good book called, um, I just finished it the other day, called Why You Think the Way You Do by a historian named Glenn Sunshine. That's such a lovely name, right? I mean, you know, it just makes you feel good when you pick up the book. But, uh, but you know, he was talking about, like, historically, what are the... What are the ideas that guided us to this point? What kind of, how do people think today and things like, it's all worldview. And, uh, but I also have gone back and uh, read some old C.S. Lewis stuff related to culture. Uh, I read a fair bit of uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, who was a, another person, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, who was looking at the way culture was going. And frankly, some of the things that he writes are almost shocking in their accuracy that we have gotten to the point that he was saying, you know, if we keep following this, this trajectory, uh, one of the things that just sort of floored me, he, he talked about the socialization of science. And Schaefer said, if you deny the idea of truth, eventually even science will only serve a political purpose. Because there won't be any under, you know, nobody's going to be saying we're looking for what's absolutely true. They're just going to be saying we're looking for what is useful in science. And to see us being at that point and think, wow, man, that guy really saw it coming. So I started thinking, okay, what is it that's, that's really driving all of this? I mean, why is it that it's not enough for these things? these ideas and these things that we have always historically uh, called immorality and sin, why is it not enough for these things to be generally accepted, but they have to be completely accepted? Why is it that someone who holds these views feels a driving need to convince me that they're true? Why do I have to conform to the way the culture is going? Why, why am I feeling this pressure? I realize that what the Bible teaches is all of us have sort of this, uh, when we sin, it, it marks us. And even if we believe that our sin is right, you know, if our culture teaches us that something that God says is a sin, we totally believe that it's right, we still have this feeling of guilt. We can't get around it. It just drives us. And so, uh, I mean, you know, think, think of it this way. Let's say I tell one of you a lie. And so I, I, then I realize, I think to myself, oh my goodness, I, I lied. And maybe even I come back to you and I confess and I ask your forgiveness and everything is reconciled, everything is fine. But then I lie to somebody else. 
At what point have I stopped just lying and become a liar? At what point has my behavior affected my character? Now, that's really hard to get at, right? I mean, it's really hard to, to when you think about yourself, uh, you might think, like, if I asked you this question, have you ever lied? I, mean, I would imagine most of us would say, yes, I, yes, I have. But if I said, are you a liar? You know, a lot of times the reaction in our culture is, how dare you ask me that? So I realize we've got this sense of guilt that we desperately need to fix. Whether, you know, it's the issues that are so prevalent in our culture, so obvious in our culture right now, or whether it's just the little things that we do that we feel like we probably shouldn't do, but it's not that big a deal. You know, it's not a big deal to lie to somebody. I mean, sometimes, you, you know, you just have it's not a big deal. We, we need to justify ourselves. We spend an enormous amount of energy, an enormous amount of effort, uh, uh, even culturally spending tremendous amounts of intellectual energy to justify the things that we do, to say to ourselves and to one another and to the entire world, I am not a sinner. Oh, sure, I mean, I do some things sometimes that aren't good. So what we say is, yes, I do sin, but I'm not a sinner. Trying to justify ourselves. And the problem, of course, is that it never works. Even if we got 100% agreement that any kind of behavior is not morally wrong, it's morally right. Even if we convinced everybody in the entire world, the feeling of guilt still remains. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the problem of guilt? So I'm talking today about the incredible authority of Jesus Christ. The story that we have here is this really interesting story because we usually interpret it I mean, frankly, I think we usually interpret it the wrong way. Uh, we usually interpret it as a, as a statement about the faith of these guys who bring their friend to Jesus, their friend who is paralyzed, and they, you know, they get on the, they're so desperate to get to Jesus, they get on the roof, they destroy some guy's roof uh, in order to lower this guy down in front of Jesus. And we usually interpret it as a as a story of look how great their faith is, look how great their love is for their friend who's paralyzed, that they're willing to do this. But the emphasis of the story is really on the reaction of the scribes and the, the religious leaders to what Jesus says. Because if you think about it, the story most naturally flows this way, that, that Jesus, you know, these guys bring their friend to Jesus, they lower him down through the roof, and Jesus looks at the guy, he looks at the faith of these, these brothers who brought him to him, and Jesus says, your paralysis is healed. But that's not what happens, right? Jesus looks at this, I mean, they're not, it's not like they, they got this guy and they said, boy, you know, obviously, uh, sure, you can't walk, but, you know, your real problem is you're such a terrible sinner. 
Let's take you to Jesus and see if we can get your sins forgiven. They're bringing him to Jesus so that Jesus would heal him of his paralysis. If you read the first part, I mean, we're only two chapters in to Mark here, but the first chapter, Jesus heals every disease that he encounters. And he gets this reputation very quickly of, of not just being someone who can heal, uh, but someone who can heal anything. And so these guys are bringing to, to Jesus this guy who needs healing. Now, the worldview of the, of the first century, at least within Israel, first century people was that sometimes God gave a certain level of authority to human beings. Sometimes that authority was to teach. Sometimes that authority was to heal. Uh, sometimes that authority was to drive out demons. Sometimes that authority was even to see. I mean, do you remember the story of Saul? Uh, when at one point Saul and his servant are looking for their cattle, I think it's their cattle, and, and they can't find them. And so uh, the servant says, hey, let's go see Samuel because he's a seer. And so they just they go ask Samuel because God has given him the ability to see you know, where cows are, I guess. And so he tells them where they are. I mean, it's, you know, if you lost your cattle, that's a handy gift to have, right? So this was kind of the worldview of the first century, that sometimes God gave a certain level of authority to people to do certain things. And so the issue that the scribes have is not with healing. They recognize that Jesus has been given a certain level of authority to heal people. And really a much greater level of authority than anybody they've ever seen. But then when this guy is lowered down, the surprising thing that Jesus does is he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that should tell us right away. Here's a guy who is paralyzed. Because he's paralyzed, he's probably doomed to live in poverty. But the greatest problem that he has, the greatest problem that any human being has, is the problem of sin. And so when Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven, he is addressing the even greater problem than the problem of paralysis. The scribes immediately respond by saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. Sure, yes, Jesus, we know you have authority to heal people who are sick, but only God has the authority to forgive sins. And that means if you claim to have the authority to forgive sins, that means that you are claiming to be at the same level of authority as God. Therefore, you are blaspheming. And maybe the greatest aspect of this story is the unspoken part because Jesus never corrects them. He doesn't say, well, I mean, in this particular instance, God has given me authority to forgive sins. Uh, you know, it's a limited sort of thing. It's, you know, for this time, this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, or, or even, you know, just, I mean, not all sins, but, you know, this particular sin, this guy has forgiven that one. Jesus never says, oh, no, you've misunderstood. God does actually give 
human beings the authority to forgive sins. You just misinterpreted the scripture or something like that. He never corrects them. And so Jesus, by his silence, is saying, you are exactly right. Only God can forgive sins. Now, Jesus then says, this is a really interesting part, he makes a statement that, that cuts in two ways. So he says, which, which is the greater thing to do? To forgive sins or to say, get up and walk? And it's an argument that cuts two ways because at one level, by their, by their own understanding, they are saying it takes a greater level of authority to forgive sins than it does to say, get up and walk. But when you ask the question, which is easier to prove that you've done? It's a lot harder to, to prove that somebody's sins are forgiven than it is to say, because you know, if you say get up and walk and the guy doesn't, it's sort of obvious. You know, it's easy to prove. And so Jesus says, so that you will know that I have authority to forgive sins on the earth. And then he says to the man, get up and walk. So Jesus is saying, in essence, when you see this level of authority, it's only a demonstration that I have the even greater authority to forgive sins. And of course, the question that the, that the religious leaders are supposed to ask themselves that I don't think they ever do is, if only God can forgive sins and Jesus can forgive sins, what does that tell you about who Jesus is? That's what they can't wrap their head around at this point. They don't understand that. The gospel is spelled out here in this sense. Anyone who comes to Jesus can have their sins forgiven because Jesus has the divine authority to forgive sins. Now, maybe it's important at this point to ask the question, okay, so Jesus has divine authority to forgive sins, but how does he have the moral authority to forgive sins? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking about Romans chapter 3, where the Bible describes God as both just and the justifier of those who sin. I mean, this is really an important question to, to take hold of here, that we understand that just because Jesus has divine authority to forgive sins does not mean that he should forgive sins, that he has the moral right to forgive sins, that even God, who has divine authority to forgive our sins, in other words, God cannot just say, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Yes, you've sinned. I'm going to look the other way. We're going to pretend like that didn't happen. God cannot remain true to himself and just dismiss our sins. There has to be some sort of justification. So what is the moral justification for Jesus saying your sins are forgiven? At this point, it's really important to understand what forgiveness is. Uh, I don't know about you, but for whatever reason, maybe how I grew up, but 
it, it feels really weird to me to you know, when somebody says, oh, I did this wrong, it's really hard for me to say, I forgive you. Uh, it just sounds weird coming out of my mouth, you know? I, I always say something like, something like, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It's no problem. In other words, I, I do, you know, I do this sort of, just sweep it under the rug. Let's just ignore it. It's no, don't worry about it anymore. Don't, don't think about it. God cannot do that. Because God, where I am not perfectly just, God is perfectly just. And so he can't just say, your sins don't matter. So how is God able to forgive us? and be true to his own just character. And of course, the answer is what Jesus does for us on the cross. The death of Jesus on the cross means that he has... Forgiveness means this. Forgiveness is not your sins don't matter. Forgiveness is I will pay the debt for your sin. I mean, think about it this way. So I said, you know, I, I, I told a lie last time. So let's imagine this time you do it to me. Say you steal a hundred dollars from me and you go out and spend it and it's gone and then you come back and you say I'm so sorry I should not have done that I stole a hundred dollars from you and I say I forgive you. What I mean by that is I will bear the loss. I'm not going to make you bear the loss. I'm not going to try to get that $100 from you. I'm not going to throw you into jail. I'm not going to press charges. I am going to bear the loss of that $100. I'll pay it. And so the forgiveness of our sins is not God saying, let's just not talk about it. Let's, let's you know, push it to the side, sweep it under the rug. It is God saying, I will pay the price that your sin demands. I will take the punishment that you deserve. And so on the cross, Jesus demonstrates his incredible authority to forgive sins, not just from the point of view of having divine authority, but from the point of view of having moral authority so that God remains just and we are saved. Jesus takes the full punishment of our sin on the cross. Now, what I'm saying is when we are running around trying to justify ourselves to make ourselves feel like we're not sinners, it's, it's a fruitless endeavor. We still have the feelings of guilt. But when you look at the gospel, it gives you a whole different set of categories to think about yourself. If you, if you, you know, spend your life running around trying to justify yourself, the, do you ever think about why do we do that? I mean, why do we, our most natural setting is when we do something wrong and say, it's not my fault. Yeah, I was speeding, but everybody else speeds. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did tell a little lie, but you know, that's just the cost of business. I always have to justify that it's not my fault because if I say to myself, no, I'm a sinner. I, there is evil in my heart. I am not 
a righteous person at the core of my being, then I have to admit, I have no hope. I'm lost. I'm not going to be okay. I don't deserve heaven when I die. But when the gospel comes along, we become free to admit the fullness of our sins without it destroying us. I can confess not just my sins, but my sinfulness without it destroying me. Jesus can forgive my sins and take away the sense of guilt and the sense of shame and the sense of humiliation because he has borne all of that for me. So Jesus has the incredible authority to forgive our sins. Well, that's, okay, so that's one story. Jesus forgiving the sins of this guy. But then we have this other story about the calling of Levi, or as we recognize him as well in Scripture as being Matthew. So this guy, Levi, is a guy who uh, is a tax collector. And, and it's such a struggle for us to get a hold of this because we don't really have a great category for this. Uh, we don't have a category or a job that would, that would sort of be like a, a, a national trader mixed up with a spiritual rebel mixed up with just a horrible person that we would sometimes use as a name we want to call somebody when we really want to insult them. Yeah, right. But we don't really have that sort of vocabulary. A tax collector was somebody who participated in the collection of money from the people of Israel for the oppressive government of Rome. So, number one, they were a traitor. Somebody who was helping the oppressor. Number two, they were somebody who was getting rich in the process, so they were greedy. Number three, they were somebody who would be considered spiritually unclean because they were participating with the Gentile rulers against the people of Israel and number four, when, when you read over and over again in the New Testament, when somebody really wants to insult someone, they talk about sinners and tax collectors. It's like the worst possible insult that you could give somebody. And here is this guy, Levi, who is doing that. And Jesus walks along and he sees him there doing his thing, his immoral, traitorous activity and Jesus says come follow me and not only to make matters worse he goes to his house and they have a big party now in both of these stories do you notice that there's a moment where the scribes or the leaders or the you know the Pharisees ask a question so in both of the stories that's the key to understanding what's going on in the first story uh, you know, the, they ask themselves, who does this guy think he is? No one can forgive sins but God. In the second story, they ask, why does he associate with sinful people? 
like this tax collector. Now, again, we've got to understand a little bit of the worldview of what's going on here. In the way Israel thought, if you associate, this was based upon their law that God had given them, if you associated yourself with something that was unclean, you became unclean. So, for instance, uh, a dead body was considered unclean. So if you had to, if someone in your family died and you had to take care of the body, uh, you were unclean for a certain period of time. So, uh, let me try to get this clear. Un uncleanness transferred and overwhelmed cleanness. If you were clean and you came into contact with something that wasn't clean, that uncleanness was transferred to you and you became unclean. So now these, these uh, leaders are saying to Jesus, look, that guy is unclean. Because of all the stuff that he's been doing, because of the way that he's been living, because of the things that he's associated with, he is unclean. And by when you go to have dinner with him, you, Jesus, are becoming unclean. Why are you doing that? And this is absolutely critical to understand. That Jesus is, by having this dinner with him, demonstrating the incredible authority that he has to reverse the process. For everybody else, association with things that are unclean made you unclean. For Jesus, association with things that are unclean makes the thing clean. My, uh, my favorite COVID joke, I don't, I, you know, I always forget where I tell stuff, but my favorite COVID joke is, did you hear that Chuck Norris got COVID? COVID had to be quarantined for two weeks. <laughs> now that's the picture. That's the picture of what, what's happening here, is that there is a level of authority that instead of Jesus becoming unclean, his life, his cleanness actually transfers to those around him. The, the flow is reversed. And that's incredibly important. You know, over the years, we probably have all met people who, um, who have said, you know, I mean, I can't really do anything great for God. The past that I've had, the mistakes that I've made, the sins that I've committed... I've made a wreck of my life. How could I ever really be a faithful witness? How could I ever serve the Lord? How could I ever do anything good for God? That sense of shame, and this would be, uh, these are not people who are not Christians, but people who are Christians who feel that their past somehow disqualifies them from any kind of service. And again, the culture that we live in is trying desperately to say, oh, no, no, it's okay. That's the other thing I always, instead of I forgive you, I always say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You see, we're trying, we're just trying to push down that sense of shame and sinfulness and, and, and uncleanness that we all feel right there underneath the surface about what our sins deserve. And we're all trying to minimize that. We want to make it go away so that we don't feel bad. But Jesus looks at this in a different way. 
the uncleanness that we feel is reversed when we come to Christ. We all have that sense of, well, maybe I could say it this way. Do you ever wonder to yourself, you know, when the Apostle Paul, back when he first becomes a Christian. So here's this guy who was a persecutor of Christians. How was he ever, you know, maybe if even he comes to Christ and he says, okay, all my sins have been forgiven. But how in the world am I ever going to be able to teach and preach and write letters to churches telling them what they should do? How am I ever going to be able to carry out the job of an apostle if, you know, in light of all the things that I've done? Don't, wouldn't my past disqualify me? I mean... I mean, just think about it. You know, if, you're, if you were at a church and the church was looking for a pastor and, you know, the guy comes in and says, well, you know, I mean, two years ago I was actually trying to kill people like you and I was trying to, you know, arrange so that you'd be arrested and trying to, I was working really hard to get Christians out of any position of power. I was trying to do everything I could. Would you say, oh, yeah, you're, you're the perfect guy for this job, you know? That's not how we think, right? What is it that is able to take a guy like Paul, maybe I should say a guy like Saul, and transform him into somebody? I mean, it's not like, you know, Paul took 30 years off before he started serving the Lord, try to, you know, try to distance himself from his past. He immediately begins to talk to people about Jesus. How is that possible? And the answer is very simple. Jesus says that he is like a doctor. And as a doctor, he doesn't go to people who are healthy. I mean, it would be ridiculous, right? For a doctor to say, look, I, you know, I'm opening up my office. This is a medical clinic but I'm only accepting people who are in perfect health. You're not, you're not going to get any business, right? I mean, people who are in perfect health don't go to a doctor. Jesus says, I am like a doctor, and a doctor's job is to go to people who are sick and make them well. And so that's what Jesus says. My life it, my authority is such an incredible authority that I can come into your life and transform you from a person who used to do this into a person who can serve me. You see, one of the great challenges of our time is we've got to take our eyes off of ourselves. This is exceptionally hard to do in our culture right now. Take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus. And always be looking at His character and His authority and His ability to transform. You see, do you see, do you see how we can slip into the, the person who says, you know, I've had such a terrible past. I, I, I couldn't serve as an elder or a deacon or as a Sunday school teacher. I've had such a terrible past. I couldn't witness to somebody else. Do you see that ultimately they're putting their eyes on themselves? My sin is so great. God, you know, I know God can fix a lot of stuff, but he can't fix my past. 
you know, rising from the dead, I think God can handle your stuff. Jesus has such an incredible authority. And this is, this is how Paul thought of himself. You, you notice Paul never says, yeah, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm okay. He says, he still, to, to his dying day, thought of himself as the chief of sinners and yet was able to give his all in serving the Lord. How could he do that? Because he knew the authority of Jesus in his life to transform him. How is it that Matthew can go from a guy who was doing everything wrong to becoming one of the biographers of Jesus? It's through the transformational power of the authority of Jesus. This gives us hope in the world. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but right now, like I go through cycles where I don't watch any news at all because I just am like, I can't take it. I just can't take watching the news. Two, feeling guilty that I ought to, you know, I don't know something about what's going on in the world. And so I start watching the news and then it's like despair, you know, just coming on me in waves. And, uh, you know, I listen to, I mean, I listen, try to listen to both sides. I'm just not interested in, in, in being one or the other at this stage in my life, I'm trying to listen to both sides of the political spectrum. And, and it's just both sides that drive me to the point of weeping. And, that, okay, I just got to stop watching, stop listening to podcasts, stop everything, uh, you know, just, just listen to some sermons or, you know, just try to, you know, build myself back up again. It is a time where it's easy to feel like there is a sense of hopelessness. Well-intentioned people, and I hope you believe that, well-intentioned people who are intelligent and have good ideas, but don't have the power or authority to carry them out. And then people who get greater authority and power who become corrupt. You know the old adage, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. We tend to think that applies to everybody but us. And that is the deception of the human heart. That we have to recognize that, you know, I mean, I told my wife yesterday, I said, you know, I think you'd make a pretty good benevolent dictator. Uh, because she's a very nice person, but she's really, you know, like she'll tell me what to do if I don't know what to do. Which is a lot, by the way. So, uh, you know, the reality is all of us have been corrupted by sin. But the hope that we have as Christians is that Jesus Christ, who is the best, among other things, the best human being who ever lived, has all of the power and authority. Whatever it is that you've done in your past can not only be forgiven, but can be, by the life of Jesus, transformed into something beautiful. Whatever it is that you've made a mess of in your life, before you're a Christian or after a Christian, can be forgiven by His grace and can not only be moved on from, but transformed into something that becomes useful in His service. He is working in the world right now through His invisible spirit and through His word to change people's hearts. 
And one day, he will return. And the one who is all goodness and all power will take charge of the world. And he will set everything right. So we are going into the week of Thanksgiving. I hope, if nothing else, this is a good reminder of what we are thankful for. Let's pray. So God, as we uh, just conclude this message, we thank you, Lord, for the authority that you possess. Authority to forgive our sins, not only by your divine authority, but by your moral authority that was accomplished on the cross. Thank you that you take all that we are and all that we have made a mess of and by your life-giving authority transform us into something that becomes useful in your service, Lord. Today, may we lay down our lives and take our eyes off of ourselves and put them back on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.